Welcome to Truly Fit, the online fitness marketplace connecting pros and clients through unique fitness business software. Welcome to the Truly Fit Podcast. I am your host, Steve Washuda, co-founder of Truly Fit and author of Fitness Business 101. On today's podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Katie Hake. Katie is an RD, a registered dietitian, and she joins the Truly Fit Podcast to mostly discuss intuitive eating, although we do go over other topics in the nutrition and fitness industry. Katie is also a personal trainer and works with different certifications to help them form their methodologies when working with nutrition. Because obviously, as personal trainers and group fitness instructors, we have to deal with nutrition. But how exactly do we deal with that and not sort of break those boundaries of what can be said and what cannot be said. She had a brief stint in bariatric surgery-related dietitian, and that sort of helped shape her career. She's going to talk about that. She gives good advice on how to work with clients, but again, not overstep those boundaries as a personal trainer. We talk about is becoming an RD something that she recommends now because everyone seems to be able to give out uh, paid information. Why become an RD if you can just do it anyway? Uh, as far as intuitive eating is concerned, we talk about the misconceptions about intuitive eating, obviously what exactly it is, and uh, just in general, the, the entire industry surrounding personal training and nutrition and how those two collide. So it was a great conversation. And if you want to find out more about Katie, simply go to Katie, K-A-T-I-E, Hake, H-A-K-E.com. With no further ado, here's Katie. Katie, thanks for hopping on the Truly Fit podcast. Can you give the audience a professional bio and background of who you are and what it is that you do? Sure. Thanks for having me. So I am a registered dietitian. Um, I take a non-diet intuitive eating approach. So I, I currently have a virtual private practice where I see most of my clients virtually starting to see some back in person um, here locally in Indianapolis. Um, but I also work in the fitness industry as a personal trainer, group fitness instructor. I spent probably the beginning of my career, a lot of time traveling the Midwest in particular and certifying and mentoring fitness instructors to, to teach group fitness. So that's kind of my, my background. I've definitely have wear it, worn lots of, lots of hats from both a nutrition and a fitness perspective, but right now, um, working in private practice and it's a lot of fun. Well, cool. And I also know that you had a brief stint in uh, bariatric surgery related, uh, you know, dietitian career. How, how exactly has that, uh, shaped your path moving forward here? Yeah. You know, I've always had that entrepreneurial spirit. You know, I started my business when I was in college, you know, just helping my clients with nutrition while I was getting my degree in dietetics. And, um, I never, ever thought that I would end up in weight loss surgery, you know, for me working in the fitness industry in particular, I think I had a lot of my own weight bias, right. And this, these beliefs about, certain bodies have to be a certain size in order to be healthy. And so I, I actually transitioned from, I started as what I call like a tube feeding coach uh, right out of college. And then a position opened up here in Indianapolis. And the reason I took it was because it was about 80%, you know, one-on-one client focus and 20%, you know, admin behind the desk. And the job I was currently in was opposite of that. It was dealing with insurance companies, you know, working a lot um, behind the scenes, not actually using the skills that I learned and developed, you know, as a personal trainer and building relationships. So I took that position in order to get more experience with motivational interviewing and, you know, talking to actual people. And what I learned, you know, first of all, I learned a lot about those people who came 
to get surgery. You know, a lot of them have experienced so much shame and guilt and discomfort, you know, and judgment in their bodies, living in larger bodies. And so it definitely helped me to just get better at counseling and empathizing and and really listening to people. But I did get to a point where, you know, I was seeing up to 28 (laughs) patients in a single day and, you know, quick 15, 20 minute sessions. And I realized, oh my gosh, I have so much to give to, to people to really help them with their relationship with food. And there's just not always the time for that in a traditional clinical type setting. So that's kind of what pushed me, um, to take the jump into private practice on my own. Well, let's get right into it here. Uh, what exactly is intuitive eating? And, and I'm going to set a, a quick uh, antidote here. I, I was at, uh, I think it was Thanksgiving or something last year with my sister, who is a, a CNS. Uh, mm-hmm. And she had like mentioned it in passing. And I thought it was a joke. I was like, what do you, what do you mean? And, and apparently, you know, how the internet works is if you're, if you're stuck in these bubbles of sorts, you see these things all the time. And if you're not, you never see it. So you, you don't know what you don't know. And I just mm-hmm. had never heard of it. And apparently I was the odd one out. Everyone else there had heard of it. So can you um, give me and the audience a, a quick definition, whether it's a clinical definition or your definition of what exactly intuitive eating is? Sure. So, you know, intuitive eating is, it's nothing new, but it definitely is becoming more mainstream. It was developed by uh, two dietitians who shared an office you know, back in the nineties. Their names are Evelyn Trivoli and Elise Resch, where they realized, you know, we're, we're telling all the, our clients, these things, you know, these air, the air quote, right thing to eat and, and how to make behavior change. And it's not working. And they're all coming back, you know, feeling like failures and there's gotta be another way. And so they developed what, what's called the 10 principles of intuitive eating. And the way I best describe it is it's really a framework of, of eating. It's a self-care model of eating where it's, focusing on the internal process, right? How does somebody feel around food? What are those biological feelings, right? Hunger, fullness cues, feeling satiated, you know, feeling comfortable in their bodies and, and really doing what's, what feels best to them versus all these external cues. And so anyways, fast forward, however many years, there's now over 150 research studies to support, um, you know, the health benefits of intuitive eating, the efficacy of it. And they now train and mentor health professionals, not just dietitians to kind of train in that modality. I guess you could say it's kind of like a lens, um, that we come from. So there's a book, there's a certification, but it's really, it's really a framework. And I would almost say it's a kind of a movement now. Yeah. I mean, I think those, that's all, that all makes sense. It's a framework. It's maybe even an umbrella term. It's a movement. It hypothetically, you could be on an intuitive eating diet and so could I, and we could be eating two totally different things as far as amounts, food types, food timing, and all of that. Is that correct? A hundred percent. Absolutely. It's very unique and individual to, to the individual. So do you feel, uh, or is this, it, does this happen to you often where people come to you and they already have a particular diet type and you have to almost, uh, for lack of a better term, like rework the circuitry and be like, okay, we're going to, we're going to stop and we have to start over because you can't use the modality in which you were using for intuitive eating. Absolutely. You know, a lot of, a lot of people, I I work primarily with women, but I work with some men as well who, who come to me sometimes seeking weight loss, right. Thinking, oh my gosh, I've tried everything out there and nothing seems to work, but there is this underlying theme of 
I'm exhausted. I'm burnt out. I'm sick of micromanaging everything that I eat. And I just want to eat <laughs> and not think so much about it and not be overwhelmed or stressed out about the, the, the decisions that I make. And so really one of the first steps that I take with a lot of clients is helping them, you know, like you say, like rewire the brain and help them understand, you know, what is this diet mentality and what are maybe some of the, the thoughts, but also the behaviors that I'm doing that are pulling me away from listening to my body and what feels good um, based on my cues. Is there a give and a take? And what I mean by that is, is part of the diet uh, regimen in intuitive eating to say, okay, sometimes you're going to go off base here, right? You're going to eat something that maybe you shouldn't have, but instead of being mad at yourself and having a bad relationship with food, you just, you, you just recover on, on the next meal, so to speak. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's a great question. So that is another kind of key principle with the, the intuitive eating model is that, you know, there's no good or bad foods, all foods can fit, you know, it's starting to look at foods neutral. And that's really one of the, the common misconceptions about intuitive eating is that people think, oh, well, if I, you know, if I'm eating intuitively, I'm just going to want chocolate and chips all day. And what we found actually with the research is that um, you may have heard this term called habituation, where, you know, if, if we can get somebody to truly believe, you know, it's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to truly believe that they can have, let's use that example, chocolate, you know, at every single meal, if they wanted nine times out of 10, that person gets, you know, they may experience that feeling of overeating at first, but eventually that wears off. You know, it's like the first time, um, are you married, Steve? Do you mind me asking? That? I, I am. Yes. <laughs> it's like, it's like the first time, do you remember the first time you said, I love you to your wife? I do. I do. It, it, right. It was like magical, like warm and fuzzies. It felt so good. You got excited, right? Like when you first started dating and now, you know, I don't know how long you've been married, but I've been with my husband for, you know, gosh, a decade now. And I love to hear it. It's so great to hear, but it doesn't have that same effect, right? It's, and so we see the same thing happen with food and we call that habituation where it's, it's not as exciting and it loses that, that allure that often happens when we put different foods on a pedestal or label them as, as good versus bad. That makes perfect sense. I guess my only holdup is if people are coming to someone like you, that means they care about what they eat. So of course they're going to eat more or less uh, clean for lack of a better term. But if there are people who don't care about their diet and they're eating intuitively, couldn't that be a problem? I love that question. You know, that's kind of the beauty of it. And I see this, you know, I've seen it in the research, but I've also seen it now being in practice, specifically in private practice for um, about six years now is that, you know, clients actually end up eating a wider variety of foods. They end up eating more fruits and vegetables because, you know, maybe they've experienced a time in their life where let's say they come to me, not eat. They don't like vegetables. They don't like eating <laughs> any sort of vegetable. They, you know, I've actually had clients say like, I hate vegetables. And what, what we learned through the process is that, well, they've actually had, you know, negative experience with vegetables for them growing up. It was, um, green, mushy green beans out of a can, or it was, you know, they had to have plain broccoli with chicken breast and rice. And so as we start to peel back some of those rules and the rigidity around food, they actually become more open and more adventurous with trying a variety of foods, trying different cooking methods and 
really bringing back kind of that eating experience, because you and I both know if you're really listening to your body and you're eating, you know, chips and cookies and <laughs> all this, you know, hamburgers, fast food, if you're eating that all day, every day, it doesn't feel good. Right. And so I, I give the example too, like if you've ever gone on vacation, right. Or you've eaten out like every single meal, we all get to that Sunday where we're on that plane ride or drive home and we're like, Oh my goodness, I just want a salad. Like I need something green. I need a vegetable. <laughs> Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, it, it happened to me when actually on my honeymoon, when we were in Vietnam, we just couldn't oh, find so beautiful. Yeah. But we couldn't find it like, um, like American vegetables. Right. So like we just mm-hmm. wanted greens or like, or a shake. And we finally, when we got to one of the bigger cities, like the sixth day in, we found like a smoothie shop and a salad shop and we couldn't, we couldn't have had enough of it. It was like yeah. the best meal. It, it's, and it's, it's ironic. Cause like, you know, you're, you're traveling you know, across the world and you want to be immersed in their culture and eat their food. Mm-hmm. But eventually our, my body just was craving like a salad and a, a shake. Right. But if, so, and you know, I'll use that dieting example too. If, if somebody for so long has forced, you know, themselves to eat, you know, air quotes, like healthy foods, like just fruits and vegetables is that there's also this mentality associated with it. Right. If I, if I eat these, then that means I'm on a diet. So we do see sometimes almost like a rebellious phase where <laughs> they're like, I don't want to eat fruits and vegetables because I don't have to. Right? Now I've got that permission to eat whatever I want. And so we, we do see sometimes a little bit of that rebel um, eating kind of come in, I guess you could say, but it's long-term what, what we end up seeing is more balance and variety in an eating pattern. I have been unknowingly uh, on the intuitive eating diet for uh, most of my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think the, the only thing that may not fall into this, and you can tell me, I'll present the scenario is I typically will write out every single dinner I'm having throughout the week. Now those can be interchanged, meaning if on Tuesday I have uh, some sort of like chicken and a sweet potato, and I don't feel like having that, but on Thursday I had, you know, sausage and potatoes, I can switch those two, but I will write out every meal that I'm having, just so that I have a sense of what I'm eating for dinner every week, would that still fall into the intuitive dieting umbrella or is that too regimented? Absolutely. You know, and that's another misconception is people think that, you know, nutrition or planning can't, can't coexist with intuitive eating, but I would say a lot of it comes from the mentality, right? If we're talking about intuitive eating as a self-care model of eating well, planning out your meals for a week, right. And, and using a little bit of that structure can actually give us more freedom. It can actually let us feel more relaxed and we have a general sense, but where I see people run into the challenge is when they get stuck of, well, well this is what I planned. So I have to eat it. And part of that intuitive eating, um, you know, practice is allowing yourself that permission, just like you said to go, okay, well, this is what I had planned, but you know, I'm going to be flexible because I don't actually want that today. I'll eat that again, you know, tomorrow and, and being able to have flexibility within that structure is really key. Yeah. And I would think, and I'm sure you can, you can speak to this because this is not what I do, but it would still be sort of a good recommendation to have a ton of different options available, provided you have the, the fiscal, you know, the finances to do that. Because still, I think the problem most people have is they're just, we're, we're lazy. And even if, you know, you, you might be craving, like you said, that, that green, that salad, you really just want a salad. 
you don't have that available and what is in your fridge is, is quicker and easier to grab. And you're mm-hmm. sort of like your, your hunger will, will win out over your, your wants and your needs. If you don't have the, the food readily available. Yeah. So, sometimes I describe, you know, with my clients as we're going through the process, sometimes I explain to them, listen, it's like, we're putting on training wheels or we're putting on a cast, like to kind of heal your relationship with food. And that, you know, cast might look like, all right, we are actually going to plan out some meal ideas for the week, or we're going to aim to eat, you know, regular meals and snacks, or it might look like, Hey, we're going to try to get balance at each plate. We're going to try to get a protein, a fat carbohydrate. We're going to start there kind of with a checklist in order for you to then get to the point where, Oh, okay. You learn. Yeah. If I don't have any fruits readily available, I'm less likely to eat them. Right. But again, they're coming from a different mindset. It's, it's making those options and those choices because I can not because I have to. So we did uh, an episode with a CNS and it was basically about the differences between like an RD and a CNS or any other sort of like certification related Mm -hmm. thing concerning nutrition. And I have to be honest, it's, it's quite uh, complex and convoluted. And I don't think the average you know, gen- person in the general population understands the differences. And mm-hmm. because now everybody feels as if they have the credentials uh, <laughs> to, to give dieting information, how do you combat some of this from a uh, professional standpoint and from a personal standpoint? Or do you just say, there's nothing I can do. I'm going to give my information and do what I can, but it's whatever's out there is out there. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a challenge that I face pretty regularly. (laughs) Um, You know, the biggest difference I would say is that, you know, every dietitian is a nutritionist, but not every nutritionist is a dietitian. So a dietitian is required to do, um, get an undergraduate degree at an accredited program. Um, After that, they are then eligible to, to apply for an internship program. So again, it's, it's not like a lot of jobs, you you go apply, you get an internship, you get hours towards it's kind of a matching program. So if anybody listening was involved, like in the Greek system in college, you know, it's, it's very competitive. It's ranking. It's almost like med school. So there's, I believe it's like a 50% match rate. It's very competitive. So once you get accepted to an internship, you then complete over 1200 hours of supervised practice. So that includes rotations in um, the hospital, doing medical nutrition therapy, working with a variety of disease states. Um, it spends time in the community that might look like working at a gym or a wellness center or um, food pantries, those types of situations. And then there's also time spent in food service, working in the kitchen, sometimes a hospital kitchen. And then a lot of times there's a little bit of wiggle room for the student to, you know, do something that they're passionate about. You know, for me, I spent my, um, I forget what they called it, but kind of the extra time working in a university uh, rec center type, type wellness setting. So after somebody completes those 1200 hours where, you know, they have to get signed off on, they're being supervised by other registered dietitians. They're then eligible to sit for uh, the registered dietitian exam. Um, so that's a, you know, nationally certified exam. They're required to keep up with their CEUs. Um, and then in some States to practice, they have to also be licensed. So the reason, yeah, so that's the biggest difference between a dietitian is nutritionist, whereas with a nutritionist, you know, really anybody can go online or, and take a certification, or they don't even have to take a certification. They can label themselves as a nutritionist. And you know, what I've, what I see with a lot of clients coming to me is that a lot of them have 
experienced a lot of harm, whether from a physical standpoint, but also um, a lot of mental and, and psychological damage as well. Yeah, that doesn't uh, surprise me at all. And mm-hmm. it's unfortunate, but I, I don't know what would stop it. Uh, there's there's laws and regulations that are in place in some respects, but they're not upheld. It's almost impossible as, you know, as a certified personal trainer through the National Academy of Sports Medicine, we are not supposed to give paid dieting advice. And I can tell you, you can go on to Instagram right now and find thousands of people who are currently doing that. And the certifications themselves don't have the the money or the time or, or the manpower to, to stop it, nor do they have maybe the legal authority to stop it. So it just happens. And sure. uh, there's not much you can do to combat bad information, except to continue to put good information out there and, and hope the good information wins out. Sure. hundred percent. And that is one thing I, I get very fired up about. And I actually work on an industry level. I actually sit for um, the committee on the American college of sports medicine and, and helping with, you know, some of those processes and having ongoing conversations about how do we keep sure that specifically I work with the personal training committee committee, you know, how do we make sure that these professionals coming in understand their scope of practice, understand, you know, what they can and, and cannot, do they know how to refer out and what that looks like? So that is something I get very fired up about. And, you know, I, spend a lot of time educating other professionals, either in gyms or, um, you know, on calls to helping people understand, you know, and the same goes for fitness, making sure that people do their homework, that the consumer is investigating or, you know, researching or asking questions, almost interviewing any type of professional before they hire to make sure that they have the background, have the education, um, and they have the, the experience. Yeah. And I think something that's missing, uh, I can't speak to your industry, but in mine is just, there's no real uh, shadowing process, at least one that's, mm-hmm. th- that is, uh, that, that you have to go through. So of course you can reach out to a gym or other personal trainers and, and, and do it yourself, but there's no forced shadowing process. And if there was, and there was more of a, a wholesale approach where you had to shadow as a personal trainer, a yoga instructor for whatever, 30 hours, you have to shadow another personal trainer for a hundred hours. And then you have to shadow mm-hmm. a, you know, an RD for 50 hours, right? Some, something like that, where it's a more wholesale approach, at least you'd have a baseline to know what you shouldn't be saying and what you should be saying. And I think that would maybe, you know, cure some of the issues going on. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely a systemic problem. Um, you know, obviously for dietitians, there is that in place, right? Like somebody has to have those those shadowing the supervision hours in order to sit for their exam. Um, but I was actually very fortunate. My undergrad, they had a program that actually, it was almost like coursework. Like if you were taking a course to become a personal trainer, and that was one of the requirements to, to actually train at that university was that you had to shout shadow, um, personal trainers and you had to go through extensive training, but you're absolutely correct. You know, there's people can go online and just do a self-study and not have, not necessarily have an undergraduate, you know, background in fitness in order to train. So I think that really falls on the integrity of the trainer or the health professional, whatever it is to make sure, you know, am I doing my due diligence um, to make sure that I'm staying within my scope? Yeah, it certainly does. It falls on them. I, I hope down the road, it falls more on the certifications. I only say that because unfortunately it's a combination of integrity and just naivety. So if, yeah, you know, if you're sure. 21 years old, you you're eating something in particular and you're working out in a particular way and it's working for you. So your mind goes, okay, this works for everybody else. Mm -hmm. You don't know that 
age and genetics and injuries and and family history and all, all these other things come into play and and they're just uh, again it's it's a naivety thing as well and I I hope that you know sometimes the only way around the naivety unfortunately I'm not for like uh, o- o- like oversight and control at all times but I do think in this particular uh, case it, it would be useful yeah you don't know what you don't know absolutely uh, you know I definitely agree that you know, I, myself as a fresh, you know, new trainer, new dietitian, looking back, there's a lot of probably advice and recommendations that I gave clients, you know, that, oh my gosh, I would never do that now. So we learn and we grow. Right. And, and that's what we, we go from there. We do the best we can. So staying on topic a little bit about, you know, sort of uh, general diet related concepts and, and I'll, I'll call them misconceptions. Are there any that are floating around now or that have been floating around for a long time that you think are, you know, antiquated or just purely nonsense? I would say the biggest one right now, and it's definitely, you know, a hot topic and, uh, you could say controversial if you ask some people, is that, you know, you have to be a certain size in order to be healthy. And there's a lot of research um, on weight science and some of the issues with some of the research studies out there regarding, um, you know, weight and links to diseases. But what we're finding in a lot of the newer research, and specifically, if anybody's interested, look up Health at Every Size by um, Linda Bacon, talking about that, you know, correlation does not necessarily equal causation. And there's a lot of, and maybe see this out in the field too, right? Trainers or fitness instructors, or, you know, even dietitians living in larger bodies, but they come back and they have great lab work, right. And they're able to run marathons and do all these amazing things. But so I'd say that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions that I see in our industry is that you have to be X number of pounds, X percentage body fat in order to be healthy. Yeah. And I think it's a facade. I think the people who try to portray that are really just vain and mm-hmm. they're, yeah. they're really, they're really just working on their vanity, but they're telling people that they're healthy and, and all in all, mm. you know, like you just said, your labs tell the tale of the tape, as far as your health is concerned, not how many abs you have. So, right. um, but that's just, I think it's a, it's an excuse. It's, it's easy to say, okay, I, I, I want to look a certain way, which is fine, but mm-hmm. you have to be honest about that and not, not try to put other people down and say, because I look this way and you don't, I'm healthy and you're mm-hmm. not it's like, well, do you want to yeah. show me your labs? Because, you know, ha- half of the people who look in a particular way are on, uh, uh supplements. I'll, I'll, I'll be nice when saying that term, uh, <laughs> that are right. not legal yeah. and, uh-huh. and their labs are horrific and they have yeah, to do, and, and they have to do a lot just to, to counteract that. And, and we've, I mean, uh, you can run down the who's who in the bodybuilding industry. None, mm-hmm. none of them live past 55. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why, right. It's, mm-hmm. it's not that, that, that is not just a correlation. That is a causation in that case. It's because of, you know, what they do to their bodies, uh, not only from a lifting yeah. standpoint, but again, these, these extra things they're putting in their bodies because, vanity sometimes supersedes health, even if they try to hide that. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and I've definitely been there. I actually had kind of one of those realize realizations yesterday. I went to donate blood and I remember for so long, for so many years in my, my days of, you know, disordered eating and over-exercising that I was never able to give blood because my iron was always so low. And I always think back to that time where, you know, I was at my leanest, but it was by far the most unhealthy that I've ever been. Um, from a nutritional standpoint, from a mental standpoint, from, you know, looking at wellness is, is the total picture versus a lot of people think it's that, 
nutrition and fitness. Like those are the two pieces, but we know that it's much more complex as that. How much blood can you donate at a time? I've never oh, donated gosh. blood. Really? You haven't? No. Um, honestly, I don't know. I'm never one of those like double. I think there's a term for it, like double donor. I don't know. I'm I just, uh, oh, I might say sure, I'm, whatever, whatever I'm, I can give. <laughs> I'm deathly afraid of needles. So I will, oh, uh, are you? yeah, I will give money. I will do what I can to, to help <laughs> any industry, but I, uh, sticking a needle in me is yeah, I'm, I'm going to avoid at all costs outside of yeah. uh, the necessities. But totally get that is with all this being said, all we talked about is becoming an RD something that you recommend still. Absolutely. I mean, I think for somebody, depending on where you're at in your, in your journey, in your career, definitely think about it, um, you know, do your research, do your homework, because it is a large investment, you know, not just time, but of money, of energy. They are now as of, I believe, 2022, it is required in order to be a dietitian. You also have a math, have to have a master's degree. So, you know, for somebody going back to school, yeah, it's a big commitment. You know, I was fortunate to know pretty early on when I started my career that, okay, you know, I, I knew for sure I wanted to do fitness and I wanted to you know, personal train and teach group fitness and educate and do all those things. But I knew at the same time, I, I also need to understand this nutrition side of things because I think it's such a huge piece of the puzzle. So for somebody listening and they're, you know, on the fence deciding what to do, I would say definitely shadow dietitians, talk to dietitians. The reason I love this field is because there's so much flexibility. There's so many varieties and specialties that I could work in, or I could pivot, you know, and there's always so much that I can learn, um, you know, but somebody, maybe they've made the decision of, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can take that commitment, you know, time, money, finance. So I would recommend them as specifically if trainers listening, you know, find a dietitian that you can connect with and have a relationship with that you can learn from that you can cross refer, you know, I have a lot of local trainers who I work with, um, cause I'm not at the moment doing one-on-one personal training. So I have some great trainers who really believe in my, a lot of the philosophies and ways that I work. And so it's really awesome to have those sort of relationships when you can say, Hey, I've got this trainer who I really think would reinforce a lot of the work that we're doing together. So it's really fun to see that. Um, and ultimately it's, it's what's best for the client. As somebody who's plugged into both worlds here as an RD and as a personal trainer and someone who works with, you know, personal training organizations, I'm going to ask you a tough question here, but are, are, what are your thoughts on the extent to which personal trainers should be giving food and diet information with, you know, without having the educational credentials that you do? Is there a, is there a scope that you think they, they can work up to, but not go past, meaning like maybe they can recommend certain food types, but not right out a diet, something, something to that extent. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, like I said, that's part of the work that I'm doing with ACSM right now is, is to develop some of those questions and help people really understand because trainers are absolutely allowed to talk about food, right? It's it, that's only natural that that comes up in a session, right? Somebody's there to improve their health. So naturally um, the way they eat is going to come up. So what trainers can do is they can talk about, you know, general nutrition. What is a carbohydrate? What is a protein? What is a fat? You know, why do you need all three of these macronutrients and direct them to resources or give them, you know, meal ideas. Um, but where it draws the line is when some and giving specific nutrition prescription, right. Telling them, the amount of calories that they should or should not be eating the, the foods that they should or should not be eating specifically. 
um, because a lot of people may have underlying, um, you know, history with certain foods. They may have a history of an eating disorder that can actually end up doing more harm than good. And so I would say to any trainer listening again, if you're on the fence or you find I had a personal trainer email me today saying, Hey, um, this client of mine tells me that she actually can't avoid or has to avoid, she has these intolerances. So, so I think use your gut, recognize when, Ooh, this is more than I know, or I sh- should be telling, I should probably refer out. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great information. And I, I couldn't agree more and echo those thoughts. And I will add to that, that you know, in, in our industry, we don't want people stepping on our toes. So we shouldn't be yeah, stepping oh on others professionals toes, right? So if we see somebody on Instagram who who doesn't have certifications or even people who have a higher level certification, but are stepping into our realm. So I've had like physical therapists who've recommend like particular cardio things that my clients do. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, you know, that's mm-hmm. just not your realm, right? Right. So you're in a rehabilitatory fashion. You you don't understand the the cardio aspect. So that's that's not your realm. So we shouldn't be stepping on people's toes. We should be networking within the industry. And that's how you get more clients and specialize in something, niche out and and garner the respect of everyone else in your industry by sending clients to them and they'll send clients back to you. Yeah, I think it elevates our profession as a whole. You know, I'll give the example, like as a dietitian, obviously I can prescribe both, both nutrition and fitness prescription. But, you know, if I were just a dietitian and a client came to me, you know, wanting to be healthier and we were just talking about nutrition, naturally the talk about movement comes up and exercise. And so if I were just a dietitian, I might be able to say, Hey, here are some options that you could do for cardio. Here's some options that you could do for strength training. Uh, this is what is the recommendation of, you know, X number of minutes per week, but I'm not saying you need to do this and that I would then I would give them options and resources ideas, but then say, Hey, you know, if you really want to take it to the next level or, you know, get more specific tailored advice, really recommend meeting with a trainer. Katie, this has been fantastic information. Where can the listeners find you if they want more uh, general information on what it is that you do, if they want to work with you, if they want to follow you, where's best to search for Katie? Yeah, I love to hang out on Instagram. Instagram is my jam. So my Instagram handle is at K-T-Hake, H-A-K-E, or you can go to my website, uh, katiehake, all the way spelled out, dot com. Katie, thanks for joining the Truly Fit Podcast, and I hope to steal you for another episode down the road about another nutrition-related topic. Thanks, Steve. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us on the Truly Fit Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your listening platform, and feel free to email us. We'd love to hear from you. Social at trulyfit.app. Thanks again.